Hello, everyone. Today's commentary is entitled, From Regression to Renaissance, Can the Glory of Western Civilization Be Restored? It was a long, slow road towards civilization. Now, we are sliding backwards, regressing into a new dark age. Islam, wokeness, and communism find continuous victories on all fronts in the war to destroy the West. Monuments of Western civilization are conquered and desecrated daily while bad people cheer. We were, after all, warned that those ignorant of history are condemned to repeat it. And if we look at the life of Sir Isaac Newton and the history of calculus, we see a reverberation in the destruction of knowledge we are witnessing today. Newton lived from 1643 to 1727 and may have been the greatest genius of all time. He invented calculus. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz came up with calculus independently at about the same time in the late 17th century. This seems to indicate that the age was right for it, yet the people were not fully ready for it. Calculus was at the cutting edge of what the times were willing to accept. It was even considered heresy. Newton was born of the medieval age, just as the Dark Ages were slowly giving way to the Enlightenment. It was a time when witches and demons were believed to haunt humanity, when the wisest men sought the Philosopher's Stone. In the era of Newton's birth, heretics were executed in Europe, just as in Islamic nations today. Giordano Bruno, a Dominican friar and mathematician, is one such example. Galileo Galilei, who recanted his scientific discoveries under threat of torture and death, spent much of the rest of his life under house arrest. Newton was the pioneer oculist, but was also a medieval sorcerer. Besides calculus, he discovered the laws of motion and gravitation and even invented the reflecting telescope. His accomplishments are even more remarkable, considering that being an oculist was his primary interest. Most of his body was firmly planted in the Middle Ages. He merely dipped his toes into the science, which would become a new lens through which to view the world, a seed that would not fully bloom during his lifetime. Newton was an avid alchemist who sought after the elusive philosopher's stone. Believed to transform base metals into gold and extend human life, the stone was supposedly given by God to Adam and then passed down through biblical patriarchs, causing men like Abraham and Noah to have extraordinarily long lifespans. The stone was the singular quest of learned men since at least 300 AD. Newton believed that the Bible contained hidden prophecies which he alone was able to decode, proving to his satisfaction that the apocalypse would occur sometime between 2060 and 2090. Stay tuned. Naturally, Newton had to keep his alchemy work secret since the practice was banned under penalty of death in England from 1404 until 1689. The ban was imposed because the crown believed in the existence of the stone and that if it fell into the wrong hands, an alchemist could manufacture gold and thereby devalue stores of treasure possessed by the monarchy. The cornerstone of calculus is infinitesimals, Values infinitely close to, but not exactly zero. Basic to calculus is the notion that a line consists of infinite points, which sounds absurd at first blush. If a line consists of infinite points, and if the length of each point is zero, then every line should have a length of zero. And if these points had length, no matter how infinitesimally small, 
the length of every line should be infinite. Today, we regard these infinite points as hypothetical conveniences essential to calculus. But in the 17th century, the Church held as dogma Plato's belief that ideas and forms were the ultimate reality. God was infinite, but points on a line were not. The Church thus held the power of cancel culture, and the risk of recalcitrance was literally life or death. In 1632, just as Galileo was being condemned and fighting for his life, a committee of Jesuits met and ruled infinitesimals heresy, and so teaching them was forbidden. Amir Alexander, an Israeli science historian, has authored a book entitled Infinitesimal, How a Dangerous Mathematical Theory Shaped the Modern World. It includes these details, quote, but when the Jesuits triumphed over the advocates of the infinitesimally small, this brilliant tradition died a quick death. Italy, where it all began, became a mathematical backwater, a land in which there was no future for those seeking to pursue a mathematical career, end quote. So for the ensuing two centuries, the teaching of calculus was banned in Italy, and it never recovered as a capital for brilliance and learning. So what is the point? Well, knowledge needs freedom. Science and discovery gravitate to places where there is intellectual liberty. It is hardly accidental that the pioneers of statistics invented at the outset of the 20th century were all British. But whither could scientists questing after knowledge migrate today? The Archimedes palimpsest. A palimpsest is a parchment where writing is removed for it to be reused, but remnants survive beneath. One notable example is a work of Archimedes, which survived only because it was painstakingly folded, rebound, and reused for a liturgical text. In the Dark Ages, Archimedes' writings were destroyed, but parchment was so rare and valuable that it was routinely scraped and reused. After years of work using modern technology, Western science, such as digital imaging with ultraviolet light, Archimedes' original work could again be read. Amazingly, Archimedes invented integration using infinitesimals and was on the verge of calculus. He was assassinated in 212 BC by an invading Roman soldier. So it only took 1900 years for humanity to again stand on the mathematical summit that Archimedes had scaled. How long will it be before we stand again where we were in 2020, before woke, COVID, LGBTQ, CRT, die, and all the other leftist idea pathogens drove our once proud civilization back into darkness. Science in the classical sense is nothing like today's fascists who call themselves humanists. Democracy and individualism were conceived over the past 360 years, but the pendulum has swung. We now find ourselves in the age of regress. It took a long time and it was a protracted, painful climb for Western civilization, that's white male civilization, to achieve everything we now have and take for granted and are now losing to an invading horde. Today, enlightenment values, science, and Western culture are disappearing under the jackboot of decolonization, indigenous knowledge, transphobia, and Islamophobia. Objective truth and the concept of intelligence are now taboo white constructs. 
Will we be returning to indigenous math, which when compared to calculus is something akin to one, two, too many to count? Or is our brain power still equal to the task of creating a better society? Impressed by the power of the mind to solve hard problems, modern intellectuals with credits in thinking and deficits in morality have for centuries deceived themselves and others that mankind can remake ourselves into better creatures than those designed by our Creator. Excited by this prospect, religious teachers with similar credits and deficits added their weight to the futile project. Two of the grandest delusions ever are the Protagoras boast that man is the measure of all things and the Enlightenment myth that reason is the only way to truth. A stubborn minority of souls have noticed the emptiness of both claims and wonder how such an insipid take on life could have flattened so many worthy intellects. Using IQ to demystify God and nature, seen as obstacles in the mission to improve humanity and the world, the heirs of Bacon, Rousseau, Hegel, Mill, Emerson, John Dewey, and a host of other bright stars of amoral intelligentsia still expect reason to improve our lives and to conquer evil. Thus far, the weight of historical evidence shows conclusively that such philosophers of past and present are all greatly mistaken. Feel free to draw your own conclusions about how badly the world has failed in producing better people through brain power. Even amplified by the latest technologies, human brains are manifestly unequal to this task. It is increasingly obvious that saving humanity from the worst consequences of morally depraved intelligence has been nothing less than the work of divine providence. Decent humans, regardless of IQ or origin, value human life and accept that we are all equal in God's sight. They apply their unique talents to help one another overcome inadequacies in the common pursuit of a meaningful life. This natural and productive form of progress is not to be confused with equity, that bastard brainchild of egalitarianism which stifles ambition and prevents those with genuine talent from rising above mediocrity, lifting everyone else in the process. This stagnating Marxist equality, cutting us all out of the same dough like cookies, reduces the gifted to apologists and removes any real work toward improving the community. What an awful price to pay for false social justice under fake equality. Agonizing over the discrepancies between what they think ought to be and what is, crusaders for phony social justice and equality continue to cast people into roles they do not fit or cannot assume, involving them in factional conflicts over racism, sexism, and other issues generated when the actual facts of human experience are ignored. For example, it is unrealistic, unnatural, and unreasonable to attempt to unite a diverse population into a uniform body of mutually embracing equals. Progressives have, since the French Revolution, acted as though liberty and equality are synonymous. It was forgotten then and now that the free pursuit of our individual interests and the mandate of equality grind against each other like ill-fitted gears, producing friction and conflict. Another damning form of misapplied brain power is the attempt to make God-centered religion conform to the secular world. Consider the martyrdom of Thomas Becket in 1170 
for acting to keep the church aloof from his king, or the beheading of Thomas More, patron saint of all lawyers, for refusing in 1535 to concede the supremacy of an earthly monarch over his heavenly king, or the constitutional guarantee of freedom of religion in Section 2A of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Despite these, some politicos, pretending not to encroach upon church doctrine or to violate its sanctity, continue to push for the political correction of religion, a job accepted by spineless spiritual leaders, including the current pope in Rome. The ancient but still proper word for this is anathema, the ultimate condemnation for a violation of what is sacred. For what else is to be made of this rejection of the teachings of Christ, alleging that they are backward and thus incompatible with world progress? Serious critics of this stance have justly pointed out that where there is no deposit of faith, there can be no church. Of the true wonders of modern religion, the greatest of all may be its marriage to secular humanism and its allied sciences. This courtship began during the Enlightenment when many an intellectual chose reason over faith for finding truth. The legacy? Well, for starters, it does not seem to bother modern Christians that secular humanism removes God from human affairs, as do atheists. It is evidently the faithful alone who lament the great distortion of Christianity in our lifetimes. Secular humanism, having taken an overdose of man is the measure of all things, places itself in direct defiance of God. Any theology based upon the premise that human happiness derives exclusively from the pursuit of knowledge is an example of brain power jumping over the limits of its own utility. Relying upon reason as the only source of human knowledge and therefore the only path to truth is challenged by people of every IQ level. They not only question the fragility of this stance, but also point to the many failures of reason and science to improve the world and its people. The rationalist or secular focus on life limits the view of the full breadth of human knowledge and experience, hardly an intelligent way to improve mankind. The long-standing idea that we are both capable and justified in taking control of our own destiny through brain power has been dramatically debunked in our time, has it not? The manifest evidence of just how big a lie this has been is truly staggering. It is a tragic error to ignore the way of truth, the way of God, and to instead rely upon our own way to improve society. All who aspire to leadership in this effort need to heed a warning from Scripture. Quote, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21. So now let us imagine a complete societal collapse occurring within the near future. High school and university students hunt down their teachers for supporting Israel. The arson of Christian churches in Alberta continues. Rising violent crime, drug addiction, and assisted suicide continue throughout Canada. Meanwhile, our government does everything possible to destroy our economy. Frankly, this apocalyptic scenario no longer seems very remote. Unfettered immigration and replacement of Western civilization with a masochistic devotion to some amorphous, multicultural pustule have shattered the once unifying bonds of a shared culture. Institutionalized racism in the form of government, 
academia, and corporate die initiatives have replaced merit with skin tone and oppressive index scores, dividing us even further. The demonization of populist political opinion as extremist, far-right, or even terrorism has ensured that half of us can no longer express our views without risk of career destruction and criminal prosecution. Anyone opposing Marxist globalization, deep state imperialism, bureaucratic tyranny, or central bank money manipulation is labeled a threat to democracy. Anyone who vigorously defends free speech, religious liberty, private property, the right to self-defense, and other personal freedoms safeguarding the individual from state intrusion is labeled a public menace. Anyone objecting to the global elitist obsession with climate change or who holds that real science is incapable of reaching a dogmatic consensus is also a threat. In other words, the government and its globalist allies view tens of millions of us as enemies of the state. In functioning democratic states, vicious ideological disagreement does not normally destroy a nation. Political factions harboring great hostilities toward each other can still peacefully coexist when political outcomes are determined by a set of agreed-upon rules, like a constitution. Free elections, public virtues such as civil respect for political minorities, and constitutional guardrails ensuring preservation of individual rights all foster a kind of governmental fairness. This allows even polarized societies to flourish. However, when certain speech is censored as hateful or as misinformation, when the criminal justice system selectively prosecutes individuals like Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, and the Coots Four based upon their political affiliations, when nobody has any faith in the legitimacy of our elections, and when constitutional rights are routinely disregarded or abused by the state, then peace rapidly unravels. When the normal release valves for civil disagreement disappear and the state chooses to perpetually torment dissidents from their beliefs, such targets of government tyranny are left in a social wilderness. The deprivation of their civil rights within the governing system leaves them with an awful dilemma. To abandon their principles and thereby escape persecution or to operate beyond that system's constraints and risk incurring the state's wrath. Whenever and wherever such a decision has been forced upon us, civil conflict inevitably ensues. What makes our current circumstances especially incendiary is the extent to which our ruling class has taken sides. Corporate oligarchs, the entrenched bureaucratic government, and the state-controlled media have joined together to push extremely divisive moral, economic, and political worldviews. In doing so, they have not only burned the bridges responsible for maintenance of cultural peace, but also destroyed any potential off-ramps, allowing these institutions to alter course and avoid catastrophes as future events unfold. Multinational corporations could once expect liberty-minded citizens to generally respect the movements of free markets, even when they disagree with the outcomes. For example, offshoring domestic jobs to more business-friendly environments like China, India, or Vietnam. But today, we are witnessing China and other foreign adversaries buying up companies and properties in their own backyards. We are also enduring transnational behemoths scolding us for insufficiently embracing transgenderism, 
EVs, white privilege, limitless immigration, and other tenets of the woke religion. A substantial percentage of formerly free market citizens now rightly view the financial class with rank suspicion. Instead of facilitating the free trade of goods and services, large companies have revealed themselves to be exclusively devoted to long-term monopolies, government partnerships, and social control. Corporate oligarchs have chosen to proselytize us into accepting the WEF's transhuman, technocratic, feudalistic project of global management. They have made themselves enemies to all freedom-loving people. While branding anyone to the right of Marx as a fascist, corporate CEOs foster an incestuous relationship with government-wielded power. That is the essence of fascism, an Italian word coined by Benito Mussolini, meaning to bind. Freedom-minded Canadians know that neither corporations or the governments that they furtively control are our friends. Even when civil order finally disintegrates, there will likely not be any circumspect public division between the elites like Bill Gates, who betrayed liberty, and those like Elon Musk, who did not. There's been a shocking unanimity of elite support for the Marxist, globalist, radical change agenda. There's also been a noticeable lack of opposition from companies, politicians, and institutions in the face of this onslaught. When the fire finally rages, it will be all-consuming. The central bank money printers, corporate barons, climate change zealots, government technocrats, clandestine security services, and bureaucratic tyrants have created a quintessential zero-sum game. Thus, when we are finally forced to defend our way of life against such authoritarian aggression, we will conclude that no one in a position of power was blameless. The boneyard of burned bridges and detonated detours all around us has ensured that there will be no more safe spaces. In a recent discussion with Tucker Carlson, astute public policy critic Michael Schellenberger said bluntly, quote, We know that the pillars of civilization are cheap energy, meritocracy, law and order, and free speech, and all four of those pillars are currently under attack, end quote. The sustained government offensive against prosperity and peace reveals a widening chasm between the priorities of global elites and ones held by those of us whom they plan to rule. Schellenberger looks at the recent COP28 conference in Dubai and sees it as nothing less than, quote, an anti-human death cult. Carlson agrees and concludes that, quote, it's not environmentalism, it's the snarling face of tyranny. We in the West are waking up to a collectivist nightmare that devalues individual human value and discards liberty as an antiquated relic. As the Trudeau government takes increasingly unconstitutional and undemocratic actions against us, the public grudgingly accepts the grim reality that tyranny has quietly infected Canada. While the state-controlled press corps betray their journalistic duty to guard our freedoms, those with the largest megaphones accept lucrative deals to become government spin doctors and propagandists. Even religious leaders have become mouthpieces for the Marxist, globalist, anti-human death cult. When social collapse finally occurs, it will be both sweeping and devastating. It will require a great deal of endurance and fortitude to make it to the other side. However, we in Canada 
are in a much better shape than those nations without any history of self-governance, respect for personal property, or devotion to human liberty. Already, small towns of people are organizing for future calamity by speaking clearly about their agricultural resources, potential monetary needs, and capacity for self-defense. Soberly preparing for the globalist planned destruction may just be how we will all survive. Now, this all sounds rather bleak. There are, however, signs of hope that the tide of human events has already turned against this globalist agenda. Conservative, libertarian leaders have been elected in Italy, New Zealand, Holland, and, most noticeably, in Argentina. The recent election of Javier Millet promises to deliver shock therapy to the Argentine economy and, indeed, to the entire Western world. Once among the world's richest nations, Argentina is now an economic failure, having succumbed to Peronist policies over the latter half of the 20th century. It is due for defibrillation. Its ailment, Peronism, bears a striking resemblance to what is plaguing the U.S. and Canada. Peron's philosophy is hauntingly familiar. Quote, The two arms of Peronism are social justice and social help. Any political elite is anti-people and thus not Peronist. Judicialism proposes a social market putting capital to the service of the well-being of the people, end quote. Peronism was thus a one-party fusion of state, corporate, and government power to reach desired social goals, with the end result of impoverishing one of the world's wealthiest and most beautiful nations. Described as simultaneously corporatist, socialist, and fascist, Peronism was a middle-class movement intent upon consolidating power from the petty bourgeoisie and the ancien bourgeois. This fight is echoed today in the West as the battle being waged between the woke, technocratic professional class against the conservative movement. Sumile's election thus provides a unique twist in our story of regression. Western societies are suddenly presented with an opportunity to perhaps reverse our declining influence, to show that we can simultaneously manage our problems and support a society in pursuit of freedom and beauty. Hence, Millet's Argentina serves as a microcosmic proving ground for Western nations to demonstrate their effectiveness. The upside is an opportunity to offset near-peer adversary influence and strategic relationships to serve as the foundation for lasting prosperity. In the background, we face an increasingly difficult fight to defend the vitality of the West against a varied enemy. Our adversary is proto-socialism and proto-fascism with two distinct prongs. The first is a creeping and denigrated form of capitalism departed from the traditional ideas of rational allocation of resources and strayed into sensuality. Through misleading, neuroscientifically sensitive marketing materials, Certain enterprises intent upon circumventing rational decision-making have made inroads into our economies. The era was initiated by a series of Nobel Prize laureates like Richard Toller, Daniel Kahneman, and Robert Schiller, who correctly identified the bounded rationality of most people. These findings were subsequently recreated en masse by teams of data scientists inside enterprises intent upon centralizing and subverting rational decision-making processes. The irony is that the entire history of rationality is predicated upon the well-recognized fact that most humans are irrational, 
and so clear decision-making is an acquired skill. Hence, the work of these men is largely a repurposing of folk knowledge. Its reflection in society is a sophistication of distorted design styles in architecture and centralized influence, which, in concert with a moralizing social pressure, is designed to overwhelm our senses. Fundamentally, it serves to weaken us and move money into the pockets of those employing such tactics. This denigrated form of capitalism makes us vulnerable to internal conflict, compromising our ability to act against globalist adversaries. Javier Millet is himself a unique asset who articulates the theoretical principles of the conflict in a way superior to any other Western leader. His speeches are marked by references to the grand theoreticians of capitalist and anti-capitalist policies. For example, he refers to Hayek's fatal conceit, Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism, and Antonio Gramsci within five minutes of each other during a recent Tucker Carlson interview. His understanding of the interplay of ideas is absent in any other conservative politician. His ability to articulate ideas is extremely valuable because our societies are predicated upon a balanced debate regarding rational policymaking. As intellectual conservatives like Jordan Peterson have abandoned the academy, their ability to construct arguments on this level has declined, and so the decisions made within our institutions have been corrupted. Millet's government is thus a strategic proving ground to show that we can offer an effective counter to leftist influences. Supporting Millet's regime is not merely an economic investment. It is a strategic ideological imperative for Western states like Canada and the U.S. By providing favorable investment terms, Western nations can encourage a prosperous development trajectory for Argentina, aligning the nation more closely with Western values. This alignment, coupled with Millet's intellectual prowess and eloquence, serve as a potent tool in countering the corrupting influence of the globalists. So in a world where the balance of power is constantly shifting, supporting Millet's regime emerges as a proactive measure to safeguard Western interests and uphold the values that have historically brought prosperity and peace to the world. Values which are imperiled throughout the West and under constant existential threat. As political conservatives, we must emulate Millet in emphasizing the power and beauty of rationality and decisions, and thereby protect and preserve the cherished order of our civilization for future generations. The coming renaissance of rational decision-making will be the antidote to the chaos of spiritual, moral, and intellectual regression. The new age need not be a dark one. It can instead be one of salt and light. We close with a quotation from H.L. Uh, Mencken, who wrote, The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable.